and welcome to Out of the Archive Box, a podcast from the team here at the Borswick Institute for Archives at the University of York. In each episode, we'll bring you stories, insights and discoveries from the many fascinating archives held here. I'm Gary Brannan, and I'm Keeper of Archives and Special Collections here at the Borthwick. In this episode, we'll go through some of the highlights of the last month here at the Borthwick, and we'll hear all about the Alcoholics Anonymous Great Britain Archive and the history of Alcoholics Anonymous in North America and Great Britain. But first, we've had a really busy month here at the Borthwick. A full rundown can be found in our monthly update on our website, but here's a few highlights from what we've been up to in October. We received a number of new additions to existing archives, including several new boxes of records from the Yorkshire Wildlife Trust concerning the work of Mary Sykes during her time with the Trust. These include papers and slides relating to YWT sites such as Ascombe Bog, Morelands and Spurn. Once these have been processed, they'll be added to the 173 boxes of YWT papers, slides, photographs and other materials that we already hold. A more unexpected accession was a group of membership cards for the York and District Field Naturalist Society, which came to us via an eagle-eyed researcher who spotted them on eBay and bought them to ensure they were safe for the archive here. The earliest cards date from the foundation of the Society in 1874 and the latest to 1973. The small collection also includes the Society's annual printed programmes of talks and events, and they'll be a really valuable addition to the archive. If you take a look at our online catalogue Borthcat, you'll notice a few new additions. We added the full catalogue for the records of Richard Frederick Wood, Baron Holderness. Lord Holderness was the son of the Earl of Halifax. His archive spans his school and university years, his military service during the Second World War, and his long political career as Conservative MP for Bridlington, and in succession, Minister of Power, Minister of Pensions and National Insurance, and Minister of Overseas Development. We've also begun adding more of our Southern African archives to Bothcat, most recently the South Africa papers collected by the University's Centre for Southern African Studies in the 1970s and 1980s, and the papers of Gwen Coleman, a leading figure in the Bulawayo Little Theatre in Zimbabwe. As well as new complete catalogues, we've been working hard to improve and expand existing ones. We're very pleased to say that we've now finished adding all of the patient indexes for Clifton Hospital. And finally, we were asked to contribute to the university's Black History Month resources for schools and colleges. As in many archives in the UK, we're all too aware that our holdings largely tell the stories of white, often male individuals, many of whom were from privileged backgrounds. Where black stories are told, they're often stories of violence and oppression. In recent years, the archive sector worldwide has begun to grapple with what our role has been in preserving and promoting a certain view of history and how much the neutrality that the sector prides itself on has ever truly existed. When we were approached by the organising committee, we decided to use one such document, an account of a Virginian slave auction written by Quaker Benjamin Seaborn, to ask some difficult but important questions about who is represented in our archives and why. We'd really welcome your thoughts and comments, and you can find an image of the document through our newsletter. Please be aware that the document relates to slavery and contains slavery-related language which would not be used today and you might find upsetting. You've probably heard of Alcoholics Anonymous, but you may not have known that the archive for Alcoholics Anonymous Great Britain is held here at the Borthwick. The archive is currently being catalogued as part of a three-year project by project archivist James Neal, who take us on a journey across the Atlantic in Alcoholics Anonymous from Ohio to York. The initials AA or the name Alcoholics Anonymous may be familiar to many. Similarly, the scene of an AA meeting, a church hall with a coffee table and a circle of chairs, has become a familiar trope used in television shows or movies indicating when a character has hit rock bottom due to alcohol and is trying to make amends. Despite the widespread recognition of AA, 
Few people are familiar with the history of the organisation and how it developed from just two alcoholics desperately seeking sobriety into an international community with over two million members. In this episode of Out of the Archive Box, the Borthwick Institute for Archives podcast, I'll be looking at the history of Alcoholics Anonymous, from its emergence at the end of Prohibition in America to the growth and development of the Fellowship in Great Britain. Alcoholics Anonymous grew out of a meeting in 1935 between two alcoholics, both with very different occupations and personalities, but united in a deadly addiction to alcohol. One co-founder was Bill Wilson, a successful Wall Street stockbroker who travelled the US looking for undervalued companies to invest in. Despite making substantial sums of money, his business came hand in hand with heavy drinking, something he'd engaged in since his army days fighting in World War I. With the Wall Street crash of 1929, Wilson's roaring twenties ended with a whimper and he hit the bottle amid bankruptcy and despair. America's prohibition laws at the time did not prevent Wilson or any other alcoholic from getting their hands on bootleg booze and Wilson was consuming two litres of rot-gut whiskey daily. In this anecdote, told at the 1960 Alcoholics Anonymous International Convention at Long Beach, California, Bill Wilson recounts a humorous experience from his time as an alcoholic. I remember one time when I still thought that drinking was, uh, uh, you know, the fall of a good man. Uh, and we had made uh, some dough in the Wall Street boom. And I bought a Packard uh, that about as long as from here out that third foot line. Um, it was up in a town near my brother-in-law's place. I was supposed to show up for supper. I got talking with the man at the garage. I forgot about supper. I forgot about Lois. It was kind of a bitter night. We needed more grog to get warm. And we kept warming ourselves, and finally I, I realized that I had to start for my brother-in-law's for supper several hours later. I started up the street, and suddenly I realized that it was time to go to bed. And uh, there was a field in the side hill par paralleling the street, and... Uh, I wandered over in it, and I laid down, and it was a wintry night, and I woke up. Gracious, I was frozen. I got off it, up the hill to the main street, started down the main street, looked down, and my God, I had on my coat and vest and my, but no pants, right down the main street of Yonkers, New York. My brother-in-law and Lois met me at the door. They were saddened. And since I was minus my pants, the unspoken question was, where have you been? Do you know, the very next morning, we found that field, and I was absolved at least from one sin, when my shoes and my pants, shoes side by side, and pants carefully folded there in the grass, right on bed. 
Even then, without knowing it, I was condemned to obsession, to lunacy, and to death without knowing it. And praise God on the increasing communication of our society that potentials like me are now coming to a younger folks just getting nipped where it begins to hurt but already faintly unless they take steps. During this time there was an incredible social stigma around alcoholism and society viewed drunks as people who simply lacked willpower to limit their drinking. Medical authorities both in the US and UK treated alcoholics in a similar manner by locking them up for a few days in a drunk tank to sober up, or in more severe cases, putting them in insane asylums. Wilson had spent time in both, and he felt the only route out of alcoholism was incarceration, insanity, or death. In 1934, following another spell in a drying-out facility, Wilson ran into an old drinking buddy called Ebby T. Instead of accepting Wilson's offer of a drink, Ebby told Wilson he'd quit and found help through a Christian organisation called the Oxford Group. Initially curious about the group, Wilson attended a few meetings but continued to drink until he wound up at Towns Hospital, a New York City sanitarium which offered specialist cures for alcoholism and drug addiction. During his stay at Towns, suffering a severe bout of delirium tremens, Wilson professed to have prayed for God for help before witnessing a powerful spiritual light and feeling a calm inner peace which had eluded him his whole life. While the veracity of Bill's experience can never be proved, it is true that he would never touch a drop of alcohol for the rest of his life. Energised by his spiritual experience at Towns, Wilson threw himself into working with the Oxford Group to help suffering alcoholics. In addition to drawing upon explicitly Christian teachings, members of the Oxford Group promoted psychologists like William James and Carl Jung, who both theorised that some form of spiritual experience could help alcoholics find deeper meaning in life beyond alcohol. While on a trip for the Oxford Group in Akron, Ohio, Wilson met Dr. Bob Smith, a mild-mannered proctologist who had become the other co-founder of Alcoholics Anonymous. Like Wilson, Smith suffered significant personal and professional problems due to alcoholism. Together they started holding regular meetings for chronic alcoholics at Akron City Hospital. Out of the shared stories and recollections of these meetings, Wilson and Smith developed a program for recovery which became known as the 12 Steps. Drawing upon elements of the Oxford Group's concept of giving oneself over to God, Wilson and Smith believed that by working through the 12 steps, an alcoholic could undergo a form of spiritual awakening which could help them attain sobriety. Despite being championed by much of the medical profession working in addiction, there has always been an uneasy relationship between science and the 12 steps, particularly those which refer to God or a higher power. However, the concept of a higher power has evolved over time, with many atheist or agnostic members claiming that the concept of a higher power can be defined as any philosophical concept, life goal or person of significant personal importance to the alcoholic. In this speech from the 1969 AA General Service Conference, Bill Wilson goes into further detail about the meaning of spiritual awakenings or experiences in relation to the 12-step program. My own experience, though, in changing the steps is rather amusing. It just shows you how things can get frozen. Somebody just showed me a copy 
uh, of the first printing of the A book, the big red thick one that we made so thick with thick paper so the drunks would get their money's worth. <laughs> and in that, yeah, this is it. In here, you will find in the 12th step that this, having had a spiritual experience, uh, we use the word experience to denote the spiritual transformation, and no doubt took that notion from William James, whose great book, Varieties of Religious Experience, laid a foundation for this movement. And the foundation was upon hopelessness, because the James cases, who had the marked transforming experiences, were people who, at depth, admitted that they had something that they alone couldn't get over, under, or around. So this transforming experience was called by James experience. And his book was called Varieties of Religious Experience. And so were his examples of it. And we have duplicated them in all of their myriad forms. Uh, now then, I always liked this word, experience. But there was a hell of a movement. I believe it emanated down in Greenwich Village in <coughs> about 1937 or 8, when the book was under contemplation. Or, or, or rather, just after the book was published. It'd be more like 40. And this was a movement to get rid of this uh, conversion business and this experience business. And after a hell of a lot of tub thumping, the people who wished to change got it, and I dutifully inscribed in the second printing that hereafter the, this was not to be an experience, it was to be a tepid form of experience called an awakening. <laughs> well, uh, I don't know whether anybody got well in Greenwich Village who would have died otherwise. <laughs> no, I really don't. And so sometime afterward, when AA had got a little less absolutist and this more intellectuals had got down to their right size, <laughs> I said, well, I'm going to try to put back that word experienced. I'll be damned if I don't like it. And I think some of the old mossbacks like me would like it too. So I tried to put it back. And I was absolutely shouted down and assaulted for heresy by God. And I was, <laughs> and I was threatened with excommunication to change one word of the Holy Writ, which is now spiritual awakening. While Dr. Bob stayed in Akron treating alcoholics, Wilson traveled the U.S. on a speaking tour, introducing thousands to the 12-step program of recovery. In order to reach alcoholics on a global scale, Wilson set about writing the foundational text of AA. Officially titled Alcoholics Anonymous, but more well known by its informal name, The Big Book, it laid the foundation of a system which has revolutionized addiction treatment and has helped potentially millions of addicts get and stay sober. With more than 37 million copies sold, the Big Book is one of the best-selling publications of all time, has been translated into 43 languages, and was named by the Library of Congress as one of the 88 books that shaped America. Following the publication of the Big Book, Alcoholics Anonymous became a household name in the US. 
It's unsurprising that an organization which Henry Kissinger described as America's gift to the world eventually made its way to Great Britain. The first documented AA meeting in Great Britain took place in 1947 in room 202 of the Dorchester Hotel. It was organized by an American member, Grace O, herself a former casualty of the Roaring Twenties, and was attended by eight other members, including a US serviceman known as Canadian Bob, who would go on to be appointed group secretary of the fellowship in Britain. Initially sporadic, those first AA meetings in England were held at various locations across the capital before finding a regular meeting spot in the Medical Society of London in Marylebone. Two early members who were greengrocers operated AA Great Britain's first telephone helpline out of a small office in the London Fruit Exchange. Predating the Samaritans by five years, it's possible that this was the first ever crisis helpline number to be set up in the UK. From London, members were active in establishing AA groups outside of the capital through outreach events and placing notices in national and local publications. Across the border in Scotland, Alcoholics Anonymous was taking root through the efforts of Sir Philip Dundas, an aristocrat who had served with Blackwatch before becoming a gentleman farmer. Enthusiastic and open-minded, Dundas travelled to America to make connections with AA before returning to Scotland to establish meetings in Perth, then Glasgow and Edinburgh in 1948. In 1950, Bill Wilson made a donation of 1,500 copies of the big book to AA in Great Britain to help further its expansion. This contributed to the creation of a publishing company and a central office in London. By the end of the 50s, there were over 100 regular meetings in Great Britain. Today, AA Great Britain is an independent charity which adheres strictly to the tradition that it must be self-supporting. This means it finances itself through selling literature and from member donations, and even these are limited. Indeed, in 1986, Parliament enacted the Alcoholics Anonymous Dispositions Act to allow charities to turn down charitable legacies. In 2020, AA Great Britain, which is now headquartered in York, has over 40,000 members and continues to grow. Since the outbreak of COVID-19, calls to AA's national helpline have increased 22% and individuals using its online service have risen 31%. The lockdown and social distancing regulations means that AA Great Britain has had to adapt by moving most of its 5,000 weekly meetings online. It's a testament to Bill Wilson and Dr. Bob that their programme continues to help and provide assistance to so many suffering alcoholics 85 years since its conception. In 2022, the British Fellowship will be celebrating 75 years in Great Britain and the archive cataloguing project at the Borthwick Institute for Archives is playing a vital role in helping celebrate its achievements and legacy. That's all for this time. We really hope you've enjoyed it. If you'd like to know more, you can contact us on Twitter via at UOYBorthwick or email us via borthwick-institute at york.ac.uk. If you'd like to discover more about our collections, you can do so through york.ac.uk forward slash borthwick. And if you haven't heard it yet, don't forget our last episode with some hair-raising tales from the days of the early railways. If you enjoyed this podcast, please remember to subscribe. And if you have ideas of what you'd like to hear, please do get in touch. We'd love to hear from you. We'll be back soon with more archive stories.